from the boardroom to the shop floor. Good business runs on good governance. Join esteemed expert in governance, Dr. Nimrod Dembele, for the next hour as he takes us beyond governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa. A very good evening to you on this glorious Tuesday evening. Uh, welcome to tonight's installment of, your, of Beyond Governance. My name is Nimrod Dembele. Once again, thank you for sharing this time and space with me as we continue our journey of uh, entrenching inclusive corporate governance values, particularly when the global markets are so depressed thanks to downgrade in South Africa as well as COVID-19, which has entered, I think it's 170, 167 day of lockdown here in the country. Um, The implications are quite severe. You don't need me to tell you that. Uh, A quick reflection in terms of what the Reserve Bank has announced that the tax shortfall for South Africa runs into about 250 billion rands due to the loss of revenue from alcohol and, 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 and tobacco industries. The economy is expected to, to shrink by between 8 to 10%, uh, and the budget deficit is likely to grow by 11% or, or, or so. So the, the basically the, the social and economic uh, quagmire that we are facing as a country are quite severe, which means we need to keep our focus on the real issues. Anyway, moving on very swiftly, uh, if you miss our conversation last week, I had a very interesting uh, conversation with Professor Zeblon Villagas, who is scheduled to take the reins from Professor Adim Habib uh, at Vets Vet University. Cardinal to our conversation was his vision for Vets University amidst the financial constraint. I believe he has actually, he's got his, uh, his hands on deck and um, with the kind of support that he intends to leverage on the university's ecosystem, uh, he's likely to succeed. Uh, we can all just wish him good luck and, and we'll obviously, you know, keep touch with him at some point to establish the extent to which he has been able to uh, implement some of his uh, program to put vets uh, as the first university or number one university in the continent and dropping it down to less than 100 university university rating in the world. That's quite a, um, a serious, uh, 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 I mean, uh, position, uh, which which is quite doable given the fact that already vets uh, has done well over the past uh, few uh, months or years under Habib. Anyway, if you missed that particular episode, not to worry. Go to the website, which is www.highfm.com to download and share your thoughts with me. Uh, and this is your show. Your views are highly uh, appreciated. Um, you know, make make your input via our SMS line, which is 34519. Our telegram is 061-895-1095. And, of course, I welcome your email, uh, uh, which... If you could humbly drop it to uh, Nimrod at HIDOC.ZA. Uh, in terms of how we will kick off the show tonight, it's just to have a quick reflection on issues that really got the country hot under under its collar, uh, you know, if you know to say the least. Um, the second item on the menu is going to be a conversations with uh, Nesreen Manny, who is the CEO at Global Artisan Network. Um, the conversation with Nazreen will focus on how, uh, you know, uh, Gen Global is pushing economic transformation by, uh, amongst others, artisanship uh, uh, in, in collaboration with the private sector 
technical colleges and multinational companies. So do stay tuned for I believe um, she's going to deliver us uh, more and more positive stuff. Um, uh, let's see, as, as a norm, let's uh, pay thanks to those that came before me before we really get into the gist of our agenda tonight. Thanks you, Kathy, for gracing the airway. Don't be majora. Thank you very much, uh, Howard. Likewise, as always, I'm not flying solo. I am with Tabo, who's a technical producer and the coordinator of the show, which is Kabisa. Folks, thank you very much. Let's hope we'll deliver sterling work tonight as we normally do. Moving on swiftly, uh, let's have a quick reflection in terms of events that um, uh, got the country hot under its collar, so to speak. Um, I'm just, I can't resist to reflect on, on the click saga. I mean, what do you think, uh, the views expressed by black people who are clearly offended by the adverts which predicted, you know, black people in the bad, you know, the hair of black people in the backlight, in a negative light, so to, so to speak. I mean, it has been established that the advert was in poor taste and it was insulting to black people. However, at the more technical level, my observation is quite simple, that the advert, the advert highlights a weak control environment uh, in the value chain and lack, and, and, and lack of consciousness about social and political sensitivities uh, on these issues, uh, uh, on issues such as race and diversity management. As I reflect deeply on the Crick saga, uh, I noted that, you know, the, the notion of diversity management should actually be part and parcel of the entire, you know, production chain. Uh, by diversity, you might ask, what do I mean? Um, diversity, in my view, should transcend just a racial representation. It is more than that. Diversity management has to do with the organizational philosophy on race, religion, gender, sexual orientation, and the implication on the broader society. These uh, these issues are, are, are obviously a, a, a hot political uh, a hot political potato, uh, and we obviously need to learn from what has happened in the past. Because if we can't learn from what has happened in the past, we we simply repeat the same mistakes, uh, which doesn't take us any further. Uh, and and the downside of it is that we lose the focus on the the the, the real issue. We've seen how H and M uh, you know, uh, evoked serious emotions. We've seen how Woolies, it is now clicks. I, but on the, on the click side of things, I don't think the advert was deliberate. Yes, it was in poor taste. Yes, it was insulting, but deliberate, I don't think so. My argument would suggest that ad, any argument would suggest that the advert was, was deliberate. I think it's misleading and no one can cut off his nose despite the face, especially considering the bipolar black middle class. This is about leadership across the level. In my view, leadership in every situation should be about healing and reconciling different views and and never ever lose sight of the bigger picture. I'm talking leadership at you know government level, leadership at union level, leadership certainly at a corporate level, as you've seen. The purpose of this show uh, is to elevate the quality of the conversations and not to and not to promote destructive narrative which does not add value on the overall agenda of reconciliation and economic recovery that is so desperately needed in this country.
South Africans, in my view, should be upset, should be obsessed with the bigger picture. What is the bigger picture, you might ask? Let's try acute unemployment rate, which is sitting at about almost 40%. Poverty and inequality, which is among the highest in the world. The obsession, the obsession about economic, about economic structural reforms, uh, that will reduce dependency on grant system ought to be that, um, ought to be a focal point in my view. Because we are seeing it, we are in a situation where the, the, we've got almost 16 million and counting of South Africans who are social grants beneficiaries. And the numbers are, are growing almost daily. The last time I checked, um, according to Treasury, we will be sitting at about 90 million, uh, social grants beneficiaries in the next three years. That is simply not sustainable, especially in a growthless economy such as South Africa. So those are the key, those are the critical issues that South Africans need to be concerned about and put every single effort uh, in trying to, to, to address them. Anyway, moving swiftly as we are reflecting on critical issues, according to the, you know, International Labor Organization, women workers have been disproportionately affected by pandemic and this undermines the modest progress on gender equality, which, which we have received, which we have seen in, over the past couple of years. And I think that's a fair observation. Um, but in the context of South African situation, that for me, um, there's going to be a redress or issues of gender or of work-based inequality will be exacerbated. Uh, also the modest, uh, progress that we've seen insofar as, uh, BEE with its noble intentions are certainly going to be undermined. So in the context of the South African environment, where the, where there's been a weak economy coupled with teething structural uh, reforms on on sectors such as mining, land, state-owned enterprises, uh, and ICT on spectrum, are definitely putting extraordinary pressure on government, which means there's a need to expedite structural reforms, which is underpinned by a political will. In my view, um, that's something that South Africa should be obsessed with. As we reflect deeply again, What's your take on Novula, uh, you know, Mogonyane's testimony at Zondo Commission? I mean, she admits that uh, her 40th birthday was pay, was held at Victoria, Victoria Hotel, but denies that she she didn't she she doesn't know or did not know who had paid for her lavish party. And I think at point some politicians live in a different planet. How do you enjoy ex, I mean, extravagant? lavish birthday party and never bother to know who paid for it? How do you enjoy state of art upgrade, security upgrade at your house and never bother to know who's footing the bill? It is, it is inconceivable as far as I'm concerned, unless you are smoking socks or something, something more potent. Anyway, as we continue to reflect, uh, we continue to, you know, the, you know, the, the other issue that sort of was mind boggling for me is the, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the former ANC, uh, MP Vincent, uh, Smith, who was a chairperson of correctional services, um, overseeing, you know, or that benefited from, um, the, the Department of Correctional Services, which has implicated Bosasa. Uh, he got about 500, you know, thousand rands, 
uh, and he declares, you know, he suggests that was a loan. But the question is, was it a coincidence that he was the chairperson of a committee that that was overseeing Department of Correctional Services, and he gets or receive or allegedly obtain loan up to 500,000 rands? Is it a coincidence? But anyway, let's leave that to the good hands of the Deputy Justice Zondo. Uh, uh, in no time, we'll always get to know whether uh, that was a coincidence or there was something untoward. Moving on swiftly, as we reflect, uh, what, do you, what do you make of the allegations that were leveled against uh, the former process, uh, um, you know, Chief Executive Blackie Montana? He apparently, you know, uh, concocted well, these allegations leveled against him by the former chairperson of PRASA, uh, Dr. Popomolefe. He says, you know, like Mdana himself, uh, you know, would wink his employer to in- into increasing his salary, you know, by, by suggesting that he got some offers elsewhere. Uh, therefore, you know, it, it was worthy of the board to increase his salary. He actually lightened, uh, Montana's dishonesty or so-called dishonesty to Daniel Ntimkulu. Do you remember that guy, uh, who was the head of engineering at, uh, at Prasa? Daniel claimed to have had a PhD and upon closer scrutiny, the man did not even have a diploma, let alone a degree. What do you make of that? The, there's, at the technical level, for me, it, it boils down to perhaps maybe one or two critical issues. One is the, the lack of environmental, the lack of control environment, uh, which is either weak or depends on the whims of, or discretion of executive. In the same token, I strongly believe that executive, uh, you know, cannot enjoy such, so, so much unfettered power unless the board, the, you know, board members uh, themselves are in cahoots or simply incompetent. In the final analysis, the board has to assume full responsibility and accountability on what happens under their noses. I loathe statements such as we are misled by executive. How many of us or how many people have seen or heard through media, newspaper and the like that, you know, it's board members saying we were misled. Uh, on a contract, on a contrary, we ought to be hearing statements such as us or we as board members failed to exercise due care. We failed to protect the interest of the shareholders. We failed. Instead, you know, of shifting, you know, blame and not taking accountability, most of these board members, they move from one entity to another entity. And, and that can't be. Uh, if you want to take this issue in context, for an example, let's look at the material transgression that happened in the build of, uh, two most powerful, you know, uh, plant by Eskom Kusile, for an example, and MDP. When this thing started, it started at about 80 billion rands in 2007. It jumped from 80 billion rands to 154 billion rands in 2013. And in 2019, it was sitting at about 300 billion rents and, you know, the numbers, the numbers still growing. If ask me, I rest my case. The fundamental issue is if board members who have signed off some of this transaction and the CEOs are taking a, they're, they're made to form the sort, uh, 
We cannot have it. The board members, in my view, should equally uh, save the same, play the same music. Anyway, I'm done with my reflection on the first part of the conversation. Please weigh in before we get into uh, the gist of a very interesting uh, upcoming conversation with uh, Nesrin Many, who is the executive director at Gen Global. Please uh, get, uh, you know, let us know what your thoughts of our SMS line, which is 34519. The telegram is 061-895-1095. Uh, On that dead note, without wasting any further time, let me take this opportunity to welcome Nesrin uh, all the way from uh, Switzerland, uh, and Zurich, if I'm not mistaken. And Nes, how are you? And good evening, and thanks for gracing uh, Beyond Governance with your presence. Uh, it's a pleasure, Nimrod, and good evening to you and the team and your listeners. Thank you for having me on. You most, you most welcome indeed. Uh, Nez, I know you in person over some years and I was quite delighted, you know, to see that you have now uh, become a global, uh, a citizen, a global leader. Uh, for purpose of the, the listeners of this show, who is Nesreen Manny? So first and foremost, I'm a very proud South African and it's, you know, it's a real privilege to be able to take up a role, um, out of the countries. I'm based in Geneva, um, and you know, it's wonderful to be able to be in the space that's the international hotspot for development. Uh, but I think it's also really encouraging that I can look back on my experiences from home, from the work that I did with people such as yourself. Uh, and I think the one thing about me is I'm passionate about development. Uh, skills development is my passion. Uh, understanding and seeing how we can work to improve people's lives is, is such a privilege for me and for the people that I work with. Um, and, and I'm really delighted that I can use that knowledge and skills that I've developed and to be able to uh, work in, in an area that's my passion. Thank you very much, Nezrin. And uh, uh, I suppose congratulations are still in order here at home. Uh, and thanks for flying the SF flag quite high. And I'm hopeful that uh, some of this negative narrative that uh, we're seeing on a day-to-day basis don't really dampen the investor confidence abroad. But anyway, um, Jan Global is a fairly substantial entity. Could you just perhaps maybe give us the its genesis uh, and, and permanently reflect on its business model. Sure, with pleasure. So, so the Global Apprenticeship Network was already set up um, as a vehicle to be led by the private sector uh, to get young people into the labour market. And it was formed post the last global financial crisis. So in 2012, government and business leaders came together at a G20 meeting in Argentina and lamented about the fact that youth employment is a universal problem. You know, it doesn't matter how developed an economy you are, um, how developed a state you are, uh, young people were really at the back end of the queue when it came to getting opportunities for training and for working. Uh, And the idea was to set up an organization that the private sector could use to champion uh, apprenticeships as a model for training for young people. Uh, a really meaningful opportunity for work-based learning, for on-the-job training, uh, exposure to the workplace, and that rapidly increases the chance of employability for those young people. What we've done over the last two years is, you know, in light of the development of the future of work um, and the very real impact on the labor market 
um, as a result of technology changes and shifting uh, sectors in the market, uh, we've widened our focus to look at uh, workforce development, to look at work-based learning as a vehicle, so not just apprenticeships, but looking at internships, traineeships, and on-the-job learning. Um, and also not just to focus on youth, but to focus on the whole of the workforce, because we realize that with this very rapidly changing labor market, every one of us needs to be skilled. So the idea of upskilling, reskilling, and new skilling is equally important to new entrants as well as those of us who've been in the labor market for some time, because we all have valuable knowledge and experience to share. Um, so we're we're set up as an organization of private sector members, um, really companies that believe in business as a force for good. And then we have our international development partners. You've mentioned the International Labor Organization. We work with the OECD, um, as well as the international employer body. It's a fairly substantial, um, you know, kind of intervention, which I presume the up, the uptake um, is quite high. Uh, and I do agree with you that uh, unemployment, especially among youth, is a global problem. But perhaps maybe, you know, because the global problems, obviously, there are a number of challenges. One comes to mind is the whole issue around the the, the policy and regulatory environment, because policies are meant to facilitate um, the the playing field or by promoting or encouraging private players to assume greater role um, to address issues that you've mentioned. Firstly, apprenticeship, internship, and on-job um, learning. To what extent um, this the regulatory environment is actually adversely impacting or promoting um, institutionalization of, uh, you know, these programs? It's such an important uh, issue in the broad. So, in fact, one of our key pillars is policy advocacy um, and support because we've realized that it doesn't matter where we work in, and we have 16 country networks um, as well as partnerships in, in multiple other countries, that enabling framework to have the impact that we need is built on regulation. Um, and, you know, you've worked in this space in South Africa. We've worked together in this space. You know, we have the best intention, but often the political will doesn't go far enough to really execute the policy in such a way that it's user-friendly. What we pick up in most of our countries is, despite governments acknowledging the challenges, acknowledging unemployment as a challenge, youth employment as a specific challenge, there's so much bureaucracy. Uh, There's there's a lack of policy alignment, uh, you know, even where the policy is well-intentioned, it sometimes is in conflict with other policies. And, and I'll take an example. We have a project in Costa Rica in South America. Um, um, and the government introduced a dual education law. Nez, 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 can I just maybe interfere with your momentum? Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's pay the bills because I see Tabo says, uh, you know, we need to pay our bills. We'll come back <laughs> in a second. Sure, no <laughs> we'll problem. Come back in a Lovely. <laughs> This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Dembele on 101.9 High FM. Welcome back. It is now 27 minutes uh, to 7 o'clock. I'm having a very interesting conversation. If you have just joined us, I'm joined online all the way from Switzerland 
by Ms. Rin Manny, who is the executive director at Pian Global. Before we went to the break, she was giving us, a, she was giving a bit of a download in terms of some of the regulatory and uh, policy challenges that is, that are facing or is facing, you know, massification, if you like, of skills revolution. Nez, uh, welcome back and, and do take us through, um, earlier on, just before we went to the break, I think you highlighted two critical issues. Um, on regulatory environment is the policy alignment, the red tape, and political will. Thanks, Nimrod. Yeah, I was giving the example from Costa Rica. The government introduced this law on dual education, but they also have a really important law to eradicate child labor. So they don't allow companies to employ anyone under the age of 16. The dual education law says you can bring in a 14-year-old into your company for training. The problem is if a labor inspector comes, you could be fined for contravening the child labor law. Now, we know that there's good intention, so we're having to work with the government to align, we're having to bring the business uh, representatives in, uh, and I think an important part of our work is dialogue, because as much as there is that political will, um, it's about engaging, it's about understanding the other parties. Um, I think, you know, having the voice of business present in these discussions, especially around workplace learning or on-the-job training is so important. Um, And, you know, when we're talking about social impact, you really need to have the policy framework in place that supports that, not one that adds more uh, burden and more barriers to the process. So it's been an interesting process to engage with governments. um, At the same time, it's to get the private sector to also come to the party. Um, So we have, you know, a a really great set of members. um, And these are members who, you know, are, are really international giants, in the space who see that business has an important role to play in shaping the societies that we need for prosperous uh, economies and social development. I couldn't agree with you more. And I'm quite pleased that you've you've raised the issue of dialogue um, as a way of managing you know, perception gaps, as a way of managing trust. Because here, here back home, um, the, the, I'm, I'm sure this is probably the global phenomenon as well, that um, in absence of dialogue between social partners, um, it doesn't really matter how wonderful or, or well-conceived programs are, uh, those perception gaps are likely to undermine the very same uh, redress or the very same very very same noble program um, that that um, have been put forward. So I, I think we are. I'm quite happy that you raise you you, you reflect on the issue of dialogue, but personally, perhaps even further. Um, I think dialogue is even more grave, uh, more important, given the uh, the disruption which has been imposed by COVID-19. Um, I'm sure as an organization, global, uh, you know, uh, gang global, you are pretty much in your turnaround or about to start your turnaround strategies. So to what extent... Okay, take us through your thought process around, mm-hmm. you know, Glenn Global, around its business model, how it intends to be turned around, which I believe, I don't think any any business will remain the same, but you, where are you and how, how different are you going to operate post-COVID-19? Well, what's been amazing is that, in fact, we've been busier than ever over the last six months. And I think there's an important reason for that, and that's because we need to talk to one another to work through this crisis. We need to share good experiences and good practice. Um, And we've been doing a lot of that. We've really been advocating uh, where 
companies and organizations have found solutions. So we've seen, for example, many of our members step up and introduce new learning strategies. Uh, so virtual, uh, digital learning, as well as some on the job. Uh, we've seen them rapidly respond to provide learning resources. Uh, and while a lot of the world stopped, many of our members actually saw an increase in their training delivery because they used this time uh, to drive learning. And I think for GAN going forward, uh, and you're right, we're actually going starting our 2021 strategic planning process. It's clear that the, this peer-to-peer -peer engagement is, is a key issue that we have to learn and share from one another. So a big strategy for next year will be ensuring that we continue with these webinars that we've been having. You know, the, the webinars give us the opportunity to cut across time zones. Uh, we're able to engage with partners across the world throughout the course of the day. We're able to bring really interesting and diverse perspectives uh, into these conversations. So, you know, we, we can bring the European Union into a conversation with the African Union and at the same time bringing someone from Microsoft to share the good work that they're doing. And I think that's been a really good outcome from this process, that people want to talk to each other, they want to learn. The other issue in our strategy is about the in-country support. So our networks have been strengthened uh, because it's also clear uh, that there is no one-size-fits-all strategy. As much as COVID has had a global impact, the solutions have to be led by our own needs in countries. Uh, so South Africa will learn from other partners, but we will have to craft a homegrown uh, solution. And I think that's also key uh, to this process. For me, one of the biggest lessons has been that we can see that when our politicians want to change policy, they can do it really quickly. And, and Nimrod, you and I have been involved in these um, education policy processes at home, going to NetLab, working with our business organizations, working with government. Um, before I left home, we signed off the latest national skills development plan. We were in those discussions for four years. And I think that that is just far too long to develop a skills strategy for a country that should be forward-looking, it should be responsive, it should be really imaginative and innovative, uh, but we take four years and yet the pace of change around us is uh, shifting so rapidly. And I don't think our policymakers work that fast. But suddenly in COVID, we saw government can take decisions overnight if they want. They can have policy instruments prepared that within an hour or two of the president speaking, things can be signed into law. So that's an exciting, as, as frustrating as it has been, particularly with the alcohol and tobacco ban back home, uh, there's an opportunity there. If the political world and the topic is right, we can get things done rapidly. So I think for Dan, it's to build on that. It's really to build on the voice of business and the participation of business in driving the skills agenda. We know that we have an important topic that we're working on, um, and how do we amplify our voice in these discussions? So that's, that's our key uh, approaches for the year ahead. Thank you very much. You just joined us. Uh, I'm having a very interesting conversation with Nazreen Many, who is an executive director at Glen Global. She's, you know, she's having this, we're having this conversation all the way from uh, Switzerland. Uh, Nez, one of the critical issues that um, personally I want to put to, you know, to you, it's, a, it's the interface uh, with, with, with the CITAS here at home and all the technical Colleges. I mean, earlier on you pointed out a, a, a more like a paradigm shift in terms of these webinars. 
on the extent to which these revenues are able to provide um, solutions across the board and by bringing different stakeholders so that we are able to co-create solution. Um, would you say the same thing about how our Tibet system or CETAs? I tell you my, my biggest gripe is with the CETAs here at home. Um, they Most of them are sitting with billions of rents. And I think it's criminal to have CETAs that are sitting with billions of rents when unemployment is at its highest. We are threatening 40% of unemployment and we've got a technical vocational system that is not as responsive as it as it should be in terms of promoting, you know, uh, 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 skills development as it should. I mean, you've made it a very critical point by alluding to the time in which it takes for policymakers, you know, to agree on a very simple. So what would you say, you know, the global, I mean, again, global is looking at the interaction or strategic partnership with Tibet, with Tibet or sector education authorities is like? So, no, no, I, I think that there are a couple of things. And interesting, I was on a webinar um, with uh, Knowledge Resources last week on a similar topic about our CETAs. And, and I think for me, there are a few things that we can do and we could do it quickly. One, there's sufficient global research out there to tell us what the emerging sectors are, what the trends are. Even with COVID, there is research that has come out very quickly to tell us where the sectors are, where jobs are being created. And I think our CETAs could respond to that because we've seen the healthcare sector, the personal care sector has seen shifts. The security sector has seen shifts. The IT sector is growing. Our CETAs need to quickly look at what are the trends and how they align to local businesses and start putting out programs that respond quickly to it. Part of our challenge at home is the succession with the national qualifications framework that everything must be registered on the framework if a seat is going to be funded, going to be funding it. And I think we need to shift from that. We need to look at this issue of micro-credentialing. We need to look at the stackable programs because we need to know how quickly to respond to sectors and how to ensure that the skills are aligned to it. Because often we do these long and intensive research studies that come out two years after the fact and they file somewhere. They're not actually used to develop programs in a meaningful way that aligns to the needs of business. I think the other thing that our CETAs need to do is more demand-led planning. Now, I know that we have instruments like the Workplace Skills Plan, the Annual Training Report. Those are meant to plan ahead for us. I don't think we use it adequately enough to give us the quick and uh, meaningful, deep responses to these issues that we have. As you rightly say, CETAs sit on money. Um, and I know that, you know, there are people in, in uh, the Department of Higher Education and CETA structures who will challenge this. Um, but, but I think the, the fact of the matter is the skills levy is a source of income for the CETAs. Many billions of rands come in through that skills levy system. Are we really understanding how to align to the needs of business? Are we putting in place relevant programs that meet that need? When we do these gap analysis are they actually based on what business needs? And I think those are some of the quick fixes that we could do. Uh, and I think the other issue, is, it's something you spoke about in your recap, it's about accountability and governance. The, we have big systemic challenges in state institutions, including the CETAs, where a lot of our attention 
is focused on the governance issues. And before I left South Africa, I was a board member of the National Skills Authority. A large amount of our time is con consumed by addressing issues of governance and accountability. Uh, and I can't understand why. There's a code of conduct, there's the PFMA, there's sufficient uh, pieces of legislation, uh, but we still have these issues which detract from the core business of the CETAs and our TVET colleges. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and and for, thanks for taking note of that particular uh, uh, quagmire. But my my sense is that um, yes, there's sufficient political will. Um, we all know what the problems are. I think you hit it on the nail when you uh, pointed out that the obsession with uh, NQF, everything needs to be you know accredited or everything needs to be aligned to a particular you know. Um, uh, 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 you know, national qualification framework. Um, at one level, you understand that government is also low, it's quite skeptical just to open the floods by, by having every single training, you know. But, but I think it's important to, to have that far line between credible training, which does not necessarily have to be NQF aligned because that on its own, it is just a lengthy bureaucratic process which undermines um, any solution that, that that is needed desperately. I mean, we cannot we cannot be sitting at unemployment rate that is around forty forty uh, percent uh, when some of these solutions are here. Yes, we understand governance issues are a, a management issues, but allow space for technocrats like such as yourself. Allow space for researchers. Allow space for people who have the ins and outs on how to take these programs into, you know, realization. I think that's where the biggest challenge is. Your take on that? I, I couldn't agree more. I think we, we get distracted by, not, not that they're unimportant, but they're not urgent. And I think we can find different ways to do it. So, you know, one of the things we could really look at is, for example, how we fund TVET. So, you know, you, you'll understand that our TVET system is funded by bums on seats. You know, it, it's really student numbers. But where are students directed to in the programs? Are they actually directed to enroll in programs that are relevant for the labor market, that are in demand? So we've seen over the years that students end up taking business administration. Is that going to give you the marketable skills that you need to be competitive in the labor market when you've got thousands of other students coming who you're competing against? Um, you know, are our TBED colleges appropriately skilled and staffed? So are our lecturers developed enough to know what the emerging trends are? Um, are they knowledgeable about industry, what's happening in industry, the latest equipment, the latest thinking? So, so I think there are, there are a few issues that our system needs to take into account. But then we also need that, that leadership to come through. Um, I, I think we, we need to see it at all levels, not just from government. It has to be from business. It has to be from college management. It has to be from CETA management. And all of the institutions engaged in this, we need to see uh, commitment, accountability, and also a genuine willingness to change where programs have shown to be unsuccessful. Uh, we, we, we sort of bury our head in the sand sometimes uh, and just continue with things even when we know they're not working and they're simply a drain on tax base. Um, so, so those would be some of the few areas I think we could quickly change. I think you're quite spot on, Nesreen, because I, the last time I, I the last time I was, I was exposed to the TIVET system, um, it was still exactly the same point of, um, arms and seat. 
um, you know, the funding model which looks at uh, how many learners who have been enrolled and there's not much focus on on the demand side of enrollment, the extent to which learners who are occupying those seats are addressing specific uh, labor market demands. I mean, we've mm-hmm. seen technical, you know, FET colleges uh, with business studies. I mean, business studies, is it is it a core business of a technical vocational institutions? Um, we've had so many programs that are just mainly, you know, it's almost like compliance. There's not much Absolutely. deep thinking. Uh, there's not much deep thinking in terms of what's the value of this program and, and how do we <clears throat> even get the lecturers to be exposed to the latest thinking, the latest technology in the labor market and strategic partnerships between um, TV systems as well as as as, as uh, businesses and the extent to which businesses are part and parcel of the TVET systems management, understanding and appreciating what is happening. So those are some of the things that one has been exposed to before. To what extent do you think there's been a shift? Uh, because, I mean, research is there, um, which has been produced on a day-to-day basis. Have South Africans been able to appreciate these kind of trends? And how far, how far do you think we have progressed? Or are we still operating in the twenty in, in 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 the in the in the twenties? Look, it, it's a challenging question in that there are segments of the population that have been exposed, um, and and you know that comes with probably some level of middle class privilege because you have access to the internet, you can do your own research, you went to a good school, you went to a suburban school. Um, I, I think for the majority of South Africans, we've probably not done enough. Uh, to ensure that they are aware of the opportunities uh, that they can mainstream in terms of learning, uh, access to learning, um, access to training, and, and their free programs even. But are we uh, getting this out to people? And, and for South Africans, it's, it's a problem as fundamental as access to electricity. How are we going to promote digital learning if people don't have a consistent electricity supply? Um, how are we going to ensure that you know, in, in homes where children are raised by grannies who potentially illiterate, that they're going to get the knowledge and understanding of what is trending in the world. So we have a lot to do as society, and this is where Dan is promoting this role of business as a force for good, because perhaps business can help get that message out. I think there's even something more fundamental. We need to start building this knowledge and exposure through school, through our basic education system because it's probably too late by the time you come into the post-school system. Uh, so how do we create the awareness of opportunities and understanding of what potential lies there? So you don't have to just go the traditional learning route of you know, uh, an accountant, a lawyer, a teacher. There's so many exciting possibilities in the world, and people like ourselves have a responsibility to get the message out. I think you, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more, uh, Nesreen, uh, particularly on the whole idea of getting the message um, out around, around, you know, skills um, uh, in, uh, and capabilities at the general education level. Because by the time you talk to FET college graduate or student, it's, it's already late. But I suppose what needs to happen um, is to change this mentality that FET college colleges or TV system as a whole are almost a secondary 
uh, you know, tiers of institution meant for people who who are not smart, um, uh, who are not who are not academic, academically inclined. So I think that's the biggest mind shift, um, which 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 obviously like to take you know go through a rigorous advocacy program, because once we address that, we're not going to have a system that are loaded with students that are still doing business uh, economies when 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 we need plumbers when we need electricians I think you know what we've been doing at GAN is uh, this issue of TVET and the perception of TVET is, is a global issue we've picked it up in every continent we're working in uh, this bad perception of TVET yet in Switzerland Almost 75% of students go the vocational education route. And we have CEOs of global businesses who started off as apprenticeships. And I think it's really about the perception. It's about shifting mindsets. But also for me, a lot of the work starts at the community level. So getting parents, getting teachers, getting local community leaders to demonstrate their support for the vocational education system. And obviously, it must be a quality system. It can't be one where uh, people don't have value when they leave. But I think the community level is so important. Then government and business and other partners need to step up and demonstrate their willingness to recruit from the TVET system, to give people the same career pathways, or even if it's on a different track, that you can grow in your career coming from the vocational system, and then about amplifying this message by having some real champions who can demonstrate their career pathway from TVET to business leadership. Spot on there. And because I think um, if uh, there's a kind of conversation that, you know, at High FM will try and, and bring in the Department of Basic Education, Department of Higher Education, in his Samosita, just to establish the level of integration, just to understand the extent to which there is this kind of, of um, how, how can I put it, um, the whole idea of leveraging the entire ecosystem. Mm-hmm. I really like the idea of getting parents involved. And what is our strategy on getting parents involved? What is our strategy to get to getting teachers involved? What is our strategy to getting business involved? What is our strategy to get government involved at the lowest level? So that by the mm-hmm. time when learners on, on children are exposed to technical and vocational education, there's already a an appreciation that mm-hmm. this is not just a, a an institution meant for those who are not so-called smart. Yeah. And actually, uh, you know, uh, they, they, they're more likely to make more money than those who have gone to the university. Absolutely. Much better employment prospects, uh, much stronger technical skills, so they're quickly employable, they're able to offer their skills and are far more productive at a faster pace in the workplace. So there's so much positivity. Uh, and then for the businesses, there's a return on investment. So it just makes business sense to go the vocational route. Um, and for businesses to fund vocational training, uh, that that we shouldn't in 2020 be having these conversations. Uh, but we, we still here, and this is why organizations like GAN exist, because we have a big job to do, uh, to get this message out about the value add, the opportunities that uh, vocational education creates, uh, and how important it is in terms of socioeconomic development. Thank you very much, Leslie. As we are wrapping up, and I, I'm hopeful that this won't be our last conversation because I want to bring in as, uh, you know, uh, uh, you again when I'm, when I'm, 
hopefully get an audience from one of the seaters so that they can also learn uh, from what you've been exposed to, learn from the current thinking, the research that you are doing in promoting entrepreneurship. And, and all these things, they boil down to leadership. The whole idea of technical and vocational education is a no-brainer. And it's actually criminal that in this day and age, we're sitting with FET colleges or TVET systems that are not responsive to labor market. We're sitting with universities. Everybody's queuing to universities. We're currently sitting with thousands and thousands of graduates from universities who mm-hmm. are jobless. And, and it fits the purpose. And as taxpayers, South Africans, we are individually responsible for making sure that system works. I couldn't agree with you more. Unfortunately, we're going to have to be there. Thank you very much for your time, Nezreen. It has been an absolute pleasure. Um, and uh, we hope to see you in no time. Wonderful. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Nimrod, and stay well and safe. Like, like, likewise, my dear. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. There we go. That was uh, Nezreen and many who is the CEO of NEC, um, you know, all the way from uh, Switzerland, uh, giving us uh, insight on how GAN Global is actually addressing unemployment inequality through, uh, amongst others, entrepreneurship, uh, amongst others, skills development, and so on and so forth. I think we have something to learn from Nesrin that we can we can take. I will take on the challenge by bringing in the CETAs, uh, bring in Department of Basic Education, bring in Department of Higher Education to see how they could also partner with, with, with Glenn Global so that they're exposed to the latest and greatest thinking around how do we migrate and actually push the agenda of, of creating employment, uh, uh amongst youth. Unfortunately, we're not even there. We have run out of time. Tabo, thank you very much for, uh, navigating the ship. Clarissa, once again, thank you very much for coordinating, uh, a seamless show. Uh, let's do this again next week. It has been an absolute pleasure. Have a good one and stay safe.